Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we're here again to worship you because of your love for us and your gracious mercy to us. Help us this day to look into your word and see just what you would have for each of us. See according to our own life space so that as we pray, we may move ever closer to your way through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. There are two things in the gospel reading that you just heard Deacon Bob read that I'd like to speak about this morning. Number one, what it reveals to us concerning the humanity of Jesus with some thoughts on the necessity for that humanity. And secondly, Jesus' prescience in terms of his realization that Jerusalem was going to be destroyed in the relatively near future and the fact that this destruction was a consequence of the Jews not accepting his way. Luke, as you heard in the Gospel reading, and as the other synoptics has it, tells us that Jesus wept when he approached Jerusalem. Now, Jesus knew certainly where he was going and what was going to take place at the time of this so-called triumphal entry. But it took a glimpse of the city itself from that vantage point just to the east in the Garden of Gethsemane to bring Jesus to tears. Thirty years ago, my wife Susan and I were fortunate enough to pray and walk in that garden with those ageless olive trees. This is worth a Google, by the way. Toward the old city wall and see probably just what our Lord saw. This vista is awesome. And I pray that you may someday visit there for the experience. Parenthetically, Jim and Eunice have been there, and I gave the sermon earlier this morning at the early Mass, and they recalled exactly the same vista that I tried to explain. But indeed, it took this vista to make our Lord cry as he reflected on the past, on his brief ministry that was soon to be terminated, and to think ahead as to what was going to happen to Zion, the home of the temple, in a few short years. And he cried. Think for a moment of Palm Sunday when we recall Jesus coming into Jerusalem being welcomed by some of the populace as a king riding on a donkey. My friend William Barclay reminds us that kings rode horses only when they went into battle. Other than that, they rode donkeys. And so although we, and in fact myself years ago, may saw the donkey as a demonstration of Jesus' humility, it really was not that so much as a statement that he was a king. He wanted to enter as a king, but not as the king that some expected. He did not seize power, and he gave no indication that he is a king of power. As always, our Lord knew exactly what he was doing. Is it not obvious that all this whole scene was very much pre-planned? By Jesus. 
But then the contrast. The Lord, identifying himself as a king, begins to weep. Kings don't weep. Kings don't weep, at least in public. They're above that. And we don't think of a God weeping either. Something in our concept of gods and kings seems to say these are far removed from that particular expression of emotion. But what Jesus weeping does is show that he indeed was truly man. Yes, we believe that he was God, but sometimes we elevate him to God's status and leave him there. Weeping is a very human emotion, but it's a difficult emotion. It's difficult to witness, and it's difficult to accomplish. And without being sexist here, I might add that it might be easier for a woman than a man. But in any case, weeping is a decidedly human thing. So what, you say? Do we need to be reminded of Jesus' humanity? Possibly we do because it reminds us of just how entirely unique Jesus was. The unrepeated, and I believe unrepeatable, phenomenon of the Incarnation, whereby God came to earth as man, is an extremely important part of what we think about when we consider our Lord and point out to others how different he is from other gods. For Jesus to have experienced human emotion, to have encountered interaction with others, he had to be man as well as God. Throughout Scripture, we see emphasis on the total humanity of Jesus. Although sinless, Jesus did share in the general condition of humanity, including suffering and dying. But we know also that he had a normal body that could be handled and touched. And of course, the birth narratives tell us that he was born. That is certainly a pretty human thing to do. And we know that he suffered hunger and thirst. Let me remind you, Matthew 4. Jesus was led by the Spirit into the desert to be tempted by the devil. After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. If that isn't the strongest understatement of all of Scripture, I don't know what is. Jesus' incarnation is unique indeed, and this is why it is so important to us as Christ followers. We know that only a God who came to earth voluntarily and, as it is said, took on flesh, in other words, became as human as you or I, would be convincing as one whom we might want to follow. His humanity draws us to him and allows us to accept the fact that he really and truly understood the human condition. And then, as such, we're not only drawn to him, but if we really think about it, at least some of us find him irresistible as we ponder what he tells us in his preaching and teaching. Just what is it that made Jesus weep? He realized that the Jews had missed the boat by rejecting 
his message. Yes, some had accepted the offer of this seemingly meek itinerant who had promoted rather strange and, yes, paradoxical ideas and yet was able to heal diseases. But most were too much tied up in self to accept Jesus' offer. And as Luke has it, to accept the things that make for peace. And Jesus realizes that his death and return to his father are imminent. And as such, there's no more time for him to try to convince folks to change their ways. At least, not until his return, whenever that may be. He must have reflected on his own not receiving him. He knew that Judas, one of his close followers, was getting set to betray him. And that even Peter would deny him. And he did know the future of Jerusalem, and it was not pretty. That brings me to the second thought for the morning, Jesus' prescience. Although others may have thought that there was potential serious trouble brewing between the Jews and the Romans, their Roman masters, Jesus prophesied clearly the, the actual destruction of the city that was to come as a consequence of that continuing struggle. The Jewish historian Flavius Josephus, you probably have heard him called Josephus, born close to the time of Jesus' death, joined the party of the Pharisees as a young man. His historical descriptions offer an important look at exactly what Jesus prophesied. Now, Josephus was strongly against the Jewish revolt against Rome that began in 66 AD, having been quite impressed by the power of the empire. With the appointment of Titus, the new emperor's son in 68 AD, the city was destroyed gradually. At least 600,000 Jews were killed. Josephus describes rivers of blood with melted gold flowing into the crevices in the rocks. By 70 AD, the city had been squeezed to death and the second temple had been destroyed. But do we really believe that the fact that the Jews did not accept Jesus' way really resulted in the destruction of Jerusalem? Is this a stretch? I do not think so. As Darrell Bach, the commentator on Luke, says, quote, the nation has made a frightful choice with dire consequences for itself. The people, considered as a community, have missed the day of messianic visitation. Though some individuals have responded, the nation as a whole has not. End of quote. It would seem that if folks had taken on Jesus and, as I said a few weeks ago, allowed themselves to be in Christ, they might have been changed. How changed? 
they would have had that needed perspective of seeing the world differently. Had they been able to turn the other cheek, as the Lord suggested, their captors might well have also seen the way. And possibly Jerusalem and the temple could have been spared. It is Jesus' prescience as prophet, his weeping as a caring priest, and his entrance as a king that force us to believe that he himself believed that had the Jews changed and taken on the way, things might have been quite different. Well, what can we take from all this? We must bridge all this to our own generation where we are asked to choose. And this same choosing must occur with every new generation. Jesus offers his way to all, whether or not we accept his way so that we can reap the benefits of remission of sin and eternal salvation is our decision and the decision of every new generation. When pondering this, I recall the sign, some of you will remember this, in the Salvation Army camp in the closing scene of that old movie, On the Beach. Some of you may remember, nuclear Armageddon has destroyed most of the world, with only a few souls alive on a submarine awaiting death off the coast of Australia. What does the sign say? Kind of waving in the breeze, if you recall. There is still time, brother. Amen.